0: Okay y'all, this is fun you know that we need help of advertisers in order to support our show. Here's what we want to make sure that the advertisers that we bring in are ones that you actually want to hear about, but we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurveycom slash Andy and take a quick anonymous survey. That'll help us get to know you, our listeners better. That way we can bring on advertisers. You won't want to skip One once, we've, once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash A-N-D-Y. Thanks for your help.
1: Hi there, everyone. It's 4 o'clock in New York. The warnings were blinking red. That's how The Washington Post, in a mammoth new investigation into the January 6th insurrection, describes the scope of the intelligence about violent threats to the U.S. Capitol on the day the election was to be certified, a threat level described as unprecedented, so the warnings went ignored. The massive new reporting by the Washington Post, likely to go down in history as one of the definitive records of the attack, is based on interviews with more than 230 people and thousands of pages of court documents and internal law enforcement reports, along with hundreds of videos, photographs, and audio recordings. It is bursting with brand new information that could inform the congressional investigation into Donald Trump's role in the insurrection. We'll take you through all of it, starting with this alarming realization from Mark Cena, commander of the Intelligence Office for Homeland Security in Northern California. From the new reporting, quote, in the 20 years since the country had created fusion centers in response to the attacks of 9-11, Cena couldn't remember a moment like this. For the first time from coast to coast, the centers were blinking red. The hour, date and location of concern was the same. 1 p.m. The U.S. Capitol, January 6. The post goes into detail about the nature of and the specificity of many of the threats posted openly online for everyone to see in the days, weeks and months before the mob of Donald Trump supporters descended on the U.S. Capitol. Quote, please be in D.C. armed. On January 6th, read an online post highlighted in an FBI memo shared with Capitol Police and local law enforcement, quote, you might have to kill the palace guards. You okay with that? Read one comment. Another said, quote, drop a handful. The rest will flee. Another warning that the post calls one of the most striking flares, quote, Trump supporters were discussing online how to sneak guns into Washington to, quote, overrun police, and arrest members of Congress in January. It's according to internal bureau documents obtained by the Washington Post. The tipster offered specifics. Those planning violence believed they had, quote, orders from the president. Orders from the president. They used code words such as pickaxe to describe guns and posted the times and locations of four spots around the country for caravans to meet the day before the joint session. On one site, a poster specifically mentions Senator Mitt Romney as a target. The new reporting makes clear what intelligence officials and members of Congress have been saying for months now. January 6th was no intelligence failure, but a failure to respond to the abundant intelligence available. Perhaps most alarming, potentially among the most significant findings of The Washington Post investigation, is when it comes to assigning Who bears responsibility for mobilizing, emboldening the mob? Was this on Donald Trump's 187 minutes of inaction as the Capitol was swarmed and seized by his supporters attacking in his name? Quote, during the 187 minutes that Trump stood by, harrowing scenes of violence played out in and around the Capitol. Twenty five minutes into Trump's silence, a news photographer was dragged down a flight of stairs and thrown over a wall 52 minutes into Trump's silence, a police officer was kicked in the chest and surrounded by a mob. Within the first hour, two rioters died as a result of cardiac events. 64 minutes in, a rioter paraded a Confederate battle flag through the Capitol. 73 minutes in, another police officer was sprayed in the face with chemicals. 78 minutes in, yet another police officer was assaulted with a flagpole. Ninety three minutes in, another news photographer was surrounded, pushed down and robbed of his camera. Ninety four minutes in, a rioter was shot and killed and on and on and on played out on live TV as Donald Trump. Then the president of the United States of America, then commander in chief. From whom the mob believed they were receiving their marching orders, watched, looked on. Stayed silent. That is where we start today with some of our favorite reporters and friends. Carol Lenig is here, Washington Post national reporter, co author of the best selling book, I Alone Can Fix It. She worked on this reporting also. Former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, Frank Figluzzi is here. And Jason Johnson joins us, journalism and politics professor at Morgan State University and a contributor to the GRIO. All three MSNBC analyst. Carol Lenig, first of all, this is such a feat, this is such a service. Um, First, how did this come to be? And 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 I didn't know this was coming. It was a surprise when I saw it sort of start to seep out over the weekend. But just talk about the effort.
2: You know, Nicole. Thanks for. Um proving that we were able to keep this a secret for a while, which is a reporter dream, right? You work on this forever and and you finally break it, you scoop it. But also we do view this as a a pretty intensive effort in public service. It came to be because an editor that I work for named Matea Gold believed that there was just a flurry of questions that were never going to be answered. At the time that we began this and launched on this multi-person project, 75 Reporters Strong, Congress had decided essentially that they weren't going to investigate January 6th. Republicans were balking. Republican leadership was saying that they refused to give any subpoena power or agree to sign off on this investigation. And our editors all agreed that we should launch and all the reporters. I I remember getting the call, would you be willing to work on this? I remember being elated at the idea that we were going to spend this kind of energy and time digging into what happened before, during and after. And uh, that was a great idea of our national editor, Stephen Ginsburg to break this into three parts. I mostly focused on the before, which we found so shocking because, remember, we think we're good reporters. We think we report a lot of good information in real time or close to the time. We unveiled a lot of things in January about what happened before the that terrible storming of the Capitol and our icon of democracy. But what we learned was so much worse, Nicole. It was essentially that there were a ton, a ton of warnings in plain sight, telling everybody exactly what these protesters plan to do. I mean, down to bring secure communications, because when this attack, which is likely to unfold, we're going to need to have a secure way to communicate, not get caught down to bring your weapons and break them down into these pieces. so D.C. police can't stop you at the borders and you will be able to get our weapons inside down to The chilling part that you just read, which I remember when we found it on December 17th, the FBI gets a tipster call who warns them there's chatter on this extremist site that's pro Donald Trump. And they are saying, let's kill these cops around Congress on January 6th. Come armed. These people are, quote unquote, chicken blank. We will drop a few of the palace guards and the rest will flee.
1: Frank, what is the normal reaction from the FBI when a plan to kill cops is unearthed on websites?
3: Yeah, first, uh, kudos to The Post for what is a shining example of what solid investigative journalism is and what it can do for a society. A couple of thoughts. There's a lot to unpack here. First... (laughs) And I'm going to get on my soapbox here about the lack of domestic terrorism law in this country. There is a blindness that has almost become a willful blindness in federal law enforcement when it comes to seeing us as the threat, seeing ourselves as a threat, seeing white folks, uh, Americans that align with the president in power as a a threat. What we keep hearing, even from FBI Director Christopher Wray in testimony, is a couple of things. First, he keeps repeating the mantra, which is absolutely true, that the FBI doesn't investigate ideology, it investigates violence. Well, the second thing we keep hearing from the FBI and federal law enforcement is it's so hard, so difficult to distinguish between the aspirational and those who are truly planning to execute. But here's what this report does for those two statements. It, it causes those two statements to really seem weak. Here's why. Plans to kill cops, repeated discussions about how to do it, how to breach security, how to travel there, what we might have to do or not. that That's not aspirational anymore. There's too many people saying it with too much specificity. Secondly, with regard to the very valid concern that we never want an FBI who violates constitutional right to free speech and to assembly and to free thought. Again, we see in this report that we're way beyond that here. The local fusion centers were seeing it, were raising the flags, right? And and yet, as it goes up the chain, if it even went all the way to FBI headquarters, it was seemingly being discounted, ignored. This is why we need the January 6th Select Committee to look at exactly what's happened here so that it doesn't happen again. And when people like Condoleezza Rice say America wants to move on, I say, We didn't move on after 9-11. We investigated the root causes and we fixed them. We created a Department of Homeland Security. We put CIA and FBI under one roof in a counterterrorism center in northern Virginia. We can't move on from this until we figure out why it happened and how we prevent it from happening again.
1: I mean, Frank, there's so much to unpack from your effort to unpack this. We still take off our freaking shoes. Because the shoe bomber, it was one of the plots declassified. I mean, this is sort of the other end of of that approach. And I want to understand, I want to put the picture back up of of the insurrection as it played out. What with the with the minutes of Donald Trump's inaction, I think, beg us to probe more is why didn't anybody do anything for the hours that looked more like a tailgate than a crime scene?
3: Yeah, and for 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 the, those on the Trump defense team who are fighting uh, the Select Committee's efforts to get their hands on commun- his communications and what happened that day and and leading up to that day, here here's the issue, right? If you claim there's no legislative purpose, no legitimate investigative purpose here, we've got three hours of inaction. And what happened in that Oval Office? How many calls did he get telling him, sir? You need to stop these people. It's out of control. You can't do this. How many before January 6th when they said even your rally speech is going to be problematic? You know, we need to know that it gets to his mindset and actually gets to the possibility of criminal intent here. That's why this is so important.
1: I'm going to read from The Washington Post reporting about Donald Trump in, in one second, but I, I need to bring you in, Jason, on this. With the Post on Earth, are so two draft tweets from Jason Miller. Um, Jason Miller wanted Trump to send this, quote, "...bad apples like Antifa or other crazed leftists infiltrated today's peaceful protest over the fraudulent vote count." Violence is never acceptable. MAGA supporters embrace our police and the rule of law and should leave the Capitol now. Jason Miller also dropped this tweet for Trump to send. The fake news media who encouraged this summer's violent and radical riots are now trying to blame peaceful and innocent MAGA supporters for violent actions. This isn't who we are. Our people should head home. Let the criminals suffer the consequences. Jason I I mean, there's so much, you know, one, this is exactly who they are. This is exactly who they want to be. This is exactly who they're still defending. What do you make of these tweets?
4: So, one, I'm going to join in the chorus. This is fantastic reporting. And then I'm going to say something else, which is it is disturbing to me as an American citizen. It's disturbing to me as somebody who was there in D.C. all the day that this happened, who was, was used to going being able to go to re- that part of town. It's disturbing to me that some of the most damning and searing and important information that we're finding out about that attack isn't coming from Congress. It's coming from Rolling Stone and The Washington Post. And that concerns me because it speaks to what Frank is talking about. There seems to be, I'm not saying that the FBI isn't working. I'm not saying that the administration doesn't care, but it seems that the alarm bells about this are not coming from our government. It seems like this administration has the fierce urgency of next week, right? When it comes to these sorts of things. I mean, they say they're looking into it. They say they're talking about it, but we're not hearing how dangerous this is. From the people who are supposed to protect us. So that's the first thing, Nicole, that that, that strikes me about this. But the other thing is this what it speaks to is not just how vast these organizations are, but think about any party. Think about a bachelor party weekend or or, or wedding or something else like that. Only about 20% of the people who sign up for the wedding actually show, right? All sorts of other people disappear. we have a network of individuals who may have just not been able to get a Southwest flight that week. We have a vast network of people who help the individuals who did attack our Capitol who are still out there. That is what struck me about reading this report, that the network of individuals who are still working at CVS, who are still working at construction sites, who are still working in law firms, they are sitting there plotting and planning, knowing that, oh my gosh, I didn't go to this trip, but the next trip to the Capitol, I'm going to be more prepared.
1: Carol, and I, and I would say, I mean, the, the person who went to the Hill, I think more often than anybody else after 9-11 was Robert Mueller. And maybe right after him was George Tenet. So, so Jason makes a really interesting point. Democrats control obviously the administration, but the House and the Senate. And it is alarming when you read what what, what you as journalists were able to put together. And none of this has really been presented in just oversight committees. I mean, th- th- where where is the oversight testimony that establishes some of what you establish in this piece?
2: You know, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful that the committee will <laughs> be coming. able with the, with, well, I mean, they have a little bit more power <laughs> be- than we do in one respect. <laughs> they have subpoena power, which we don't. And there are still, honestly, I mean, it kills me to say it, there are still unanswered questions, even after all of these reports work, after all the tireless effort. And I would say, Jason, I appreciate exactly what you're pointing out. But I think it's fair to deduce now, after all of this work, that the system is not working. And Nicole, you are, you know, a hardened veteran of this moment. And Frank, you too, in the sense of post 9-11, we have an enormous architecture, a huge architecture that is supposed to get left bang, right? Left of bang is code for, we're going to disrupt things before they happen. Here were a million opportunities to get left of bang and our apparatus failed. And that could have been willing, that could have been intentional, that could have been fear, that could have been seeing white instead of black and brown. You know, we don't know every element of this, but we know it's a failure because as Frank and, and you too, actually, Josh, point out, this aspirational element. It wasn't aspirational. Everything they said they were going to do, they did. Right. I mean, Carol, I want to
1: point I want to read from the reporting about Donald Trump's role, because I think we all cover this. Will they or won't they subpoena Donald Trump? I mean, what what you were able to report on is certainly a roadmap. should they head down that path. Trump watched the attack play out on television and resisted acting, neither to coordinate a federal response nor to instruct his supporters to disperse. He all but abdicated his responsibilities as commander in chief. President reduced to mere bystander. His Make America Great Again army was on the march. This as he had commanded at the rally. The president had directed his followers to head to the Capitol in a forceful show of, quote, pride and boldness right. to pressure lawmakers to overturn the results of an election he falsely claimed had been rigged. No, they were literally fighting to keep Trump in power. You, You give us what's happening at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, too, Carol. Pelosi and Schumer called Rosen from their secure location to ask him urgently to send reinforcements to the Capitol. Call the president, Schumer yelled at Rosen. Tell him to call off his people. Tell him. To tweet that they have to stop this. Rosen, who a few days earlier barely survived an attempt by Trump to fire him and replace him with a loyalist willing to echo the president's wild claims about voter fraud, considered Schumer's suggestion impractical. What? Rosen spoke to senior White House (laughs) officials that day, including Cipollone, but never to the president. So so this is so so encapsulates the whole problem. Everyone with a scrap of honor in them was scared bleepless of getting fired and replaced by a real coup planner, plotter, carry outer. that they didn't do anything that Rosen didn't call Trump after Schumer called him is one of, to me, the most stunning revelations, Carol.
2: You know, I'm glad you hammer in on that one, Nicole, because it is echoed over and over again. Right. Rosen thought it was impractical which really means he thought that calling was going to get nothing done. He was going to get roared at um, and, and achieve nothing. There's a reason why Chris Wray seemed, the FBI director, seemed to have his head down during a lot of this experience. Nobody, nobody was willing to tell the emperor, um, well, I take that back. Nobody believed that telling the emperor, you've got to stop this, was going to have a really solid chance of success. Meanwhile, at the White House, people who were very close to the president were begging Mark Meadows, get the president to stop this. People were begging Ivanka Trump, get your father to stop this. And those were impractical. They were not also successful.
1: I want to read um, for you, Frank, um, a little bit more of, of what the reporting fleshes out about the disconnect between the, intel- between the intelligence and law enforcement response. Um, Capitol Police Director of Intelligence Jack Donahue and DHS Division Chief Julie Farman made a grim prediction in their final internal report January 6th would be far more dangerous to the Capitol and its occupants than the pro-Trump rallies in November and December. Quote, Congress itself is the target, they concluded. But the key analysis was tucked at the bottom of page 13 of a 15-page report. How is that possible, Frank?
3: I, I, there are so many unanswered questions here one thing that jumped out at me related to this is the the dc the washington dc intelligence fusion center actually suggested to area hospitals that they stock up their blood banks
1: for, for a mass casualty
3: January event yeah. that is a screaming yeah, yeah for a yeah. possible mass casualty event so the disconnect there up to the feds DHS, FBI headquarters, et cetera, has got to be parsed out and examined. And whether there are needed changes to domestic operating guidelines, I can tell you in my experience in the FBI, we spent much more time training and learning and being tested on throughout our careers, the things we could not do domestically, because God forbid we violated constitutional rights and we don't want an FBI that does that but we never trained enough on hey here are the scenarios that will allow you to open an assessment a threat assessment a preliminary inquiry and take a look so the, the huge irony that we could be looking at here in part is that in in an effort to not violate anybody's constitutional rights we actually permitted an insurrection that would have taken down our democracy the transfer the peaceful transfer of power that needs to get fixed that's why there is is value in the select committee because we've got to fix it just like we did after 9 11.
1: You know, Jason, I want to come back to your earlier point. Um, the fact that it all rests on a select committee that is um, valiant in its ambition but endangered. I mean, it's, its members, its Republican members, are literally being run out of the body in which they serve, on the committee in which they serve. Um, I'm Kinzinger said over the weekend, he thinks the committee will be killed if Republicans shall um, should prevail in the midterms. And and I want to come back to to what you're getting at. I mean, why is it all the the work of the one six committee, this committee that shouldn't even have had to be if a commission had been established by Congress?
4: So, yeah, Nicole, you're exactly right. This shouldn't all be on the one six commission. It should also be on the Department of Justice. Why is it Merrick Garland screaming about this every single day? Why is it the president screaming about this every single day, at least from a symbolic standpoint? Nicole, I I can tell you, before we even get even to the specifics of this, this is also, believe it or not, in a larger macro political sense, this is also why Biden's numbers are where they are. Those people who voted for him, those Americans who actually believe in this country, believe in democracy, including people who didn't vote for Biden but are certainly not insurrectionist terrorists, they feel like they got punched in the face on January 6th. They saw the whole country get attacked. And they want a president who's going to fight back. They want a president who talks about these terrorists the same way that we heard George Bush and Bill Clinton talk about terrorism for 20 years. They want to hear that about these people. It seems like they're being treated with kid gloves. And a lone committee that has limited power, that's hamstrung by by basically a whole bunch of Benedict Arnolds on the Republican Party, is not going to be enough to keep us safe. There is nothing right now other than perhaps the, you know, the, the, the lone efforts of, of a couple of Capitol Police officers, there's nothing right now to keep Josh Hawley from you know, taking the chains off the back door and letting people sneak in like a high school shooter. I mean, that that's essentially what we're looking at right now. And so that's why people are legitimately concerned about this. And I'll, and I'll close with this because I always think it's important. As Frank points out, you know, people were concerned about constitutional rights. No, these people were concerned about getting fired. They don't care about our democracy. If they did, they would have been more serious about this. And I swear, I don't hear anybody getting that concerned about constitutional rights when they're knocking black people's heads up against the wall for fighting for rights and justice, right? Let's be clear about why our law enforcement doesn't get as serious about this as they have for people who were protesting all last summer. There is no chance in heck if the demographics of that crowd was not composed of a lot of former military and law enforcement people and a lot of non-black people that this would have happened the way it did. They need to be just as passionate about defending this country against people who look like them as they were against people who are fighting for the soul of this country who were fighting last summer.
1: Frank, is that fair?
3: I've said this before publicly, if you change the religion of the people uh, breaching security on January 6th at the Capitol to Islam and associate them with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, this would not have happened. FBI would have been all over it because their guidelines allow them to do it. And they view the other as the threat. We need to have a domestic terrorism law that lets us treat a threat like a threat, regardless of where it's coming from.
2: And and the only last point I I would make to... Oh, go ahead, Carol. I was going to add one more thing, which is I completely agree with Jonathan and Frank. I totally do. I, I know why they're concerned about the race. Just as frightening to me is the fact that months before the FBI disrupted an almost identical attempt to kidnap a governor with the same online chatter. You know, those people were white. Those people fell into a domestic extremism world. And just as frightening to me is that they ignored this one when they obviously knew the cookbook, the playbook for disrupting something serious and extremist and homegrown. Um, And so 100 percent with you on the systemic chronic issues, but fearful, honestly, that something even worse wasn't spotted and taken seriously. And, And just to sort of close
1: Jason's political loop, The one modern example of midterm politics defying the the terrible history that a president's party loses in the midterms is, you all know, 2002. When the president in office spent every day and again, the policy choices will be debated till the end of time. But that presidency became about understanding who attacked us on 9-11 and making sure they paid a price and could not attack us again. So I think we have to put a pin in that political analysis, Jason Johnson. But um, as usual, I think you may be onto something. Frank Figluse, thank you so much for starting us off on this. Carol and Jason stick around when we come back. More on the pressure campaign against then Vice President Mike Pence to toss out the votes, the will of the American people. New emails and interviews show how hard Trump's attorney, coup plotter John Eastman, who faces a subpoena this week, worked to spin a web of lies in order to support Trump's bid to overthrow the election plus. Tomorrow is election day. We'll preview the big race that has understandably attracted the most national attention where this razor thin Virginia governor's contest stands now just hours away. And later in the program, the Texas abortion law, the most restrictive in the nation in front of the United States Supreme Court today. Surprising many hinting that abortion providers might be allowed to challenge the law. We'll have the very latest on this historic day at the Supreme Court. All those stories and more when Deadline White House continues after a quick break. don't
0: go anywhere today get the best of msnbc all in one place every day each morning in your inbox with the msnbc daily newsletter understand today's news sign up for msnbc daily at msnbc.com what if millions of black americans had been compensated for slavery Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now.
1: There's a startling new account by a top Pence aide offering fresh insight into the dangerous mindset of Trump's lawyers and their support for a coup on January 6th, even as the violent attack was happening. According to The Washington Post, Pence aide Greg Jacob wrote a draft of an op-ed that he ultimately decided not to publish. But it said that as he and the vice president hid from the Capitol insurrectionists, some of whom were making verbal threats against Pence's life. The Pence aide received an email from Trump lawyer John Eastman. We've talked a lot about him here. Eastman blamed the violence on Pence's refusal to block the certification of Biden's win. Greg Jacob responded that a, quote, siege was happening. And Eastman wrote back this, quote, the siege is because of you and your boss did not do what was necessary to allow this to be aired in a public way so that the American people can see for themselves what happened referring to Trump's claims of voter fraud. In that unpublished op-ed, Jacob wrote that by sending the email at that moment, Eastman displayed a shocking lack of awareness of how those practical implications were playing out in real time. And that Eastman continued to press the Pence team with a, quote, barrage of bankrupt legal theories. John Eastman is expected to be subpoenaed by the January 6th committee this week for his role in advising Trump on how to overturn the 2020 election. Joining our conversation, Mike Schmidt, New York Times Washington correspondent, as well as an MSNBC national security contributor. Carol Lennick is here. Mike, you said on Friday that Eastman's having a hard time finding a lawyer. Is, is, is this body of his conduct part of the reason why?
5: There's a thing about Eastman that is sort of hard to explain and define, but it is truly like talking when you talk to him, talking to someone that is really on a different planet and speaks a different (laughs) language. He really believes that the election um, there was massive voter fraud. He has dedicated himself to trying to uncover this in the aftermath year, either through suits that he's bringing or invest, following up on investigative tips. He told me he wanted to write a book about this. He really, and even after we, we ran the story, you know, was uh, you know, you know, was angry or disappointed at us for not acknowledging the fraud claims and for the fact that the fraud that we, you know, we say that there was no widespread fraud that changed the election. And that's how he sees the world. And it is a very different thing than I've really ever found in my reporting because it's such a different type of reality. And here's someone who's a college professor, uh, someone who had been seen in conservative legal circles as an expert in different parts of constitutional law and has just a completely fundamentally different view of of the world than than uh, i guess most of the people on the show
1: well, Carol, I mean, I think the, 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 the reporting that developed of The weekend suggested he had a fundamentally different version of the truth from the vice president. And I, I want to read more from the unpublished op-ed. Jacob wrote in his draft article that Eastman and Giuliani were part of a cadre of outside lawyers who had, quote, spun a web of lies and disinformation in an attempt to pressure Pence to betray his oath of office. And the Constitution. Now that the moment of immediate crisis has passed, the legal profession should dispassionately examine whether the attorneys involved should be disciplined for using their credentials that Mike talks about to sell a stream of snake oil to the most powerful office in the world, wrapped in the guise of a lawyer's advice. I mean, Jacob is calling out exactly what Mike's describing, that you walk into the Trump Oval Office with a degree and you could sell Donald Trump anything.
2: (laughs) you know uh i don't i hope i don't butcher this um this metaphor but it's like chicken or egg snake oil or snake you know was eastman giving what trump the snake oil that he demanded what did he catch the trump fever of like believing there was a fraud because the president was summoning him and listening to him, it's hard to know. But I think what's really striking that you focus on here, Nicole, is that Eastman's view of reality was divorced from reality when it came to January 6th. He's sending an email to a legal advisor to the vice president about the viability of whether or not Pence can decertify the election while people are chanting for the execution of that said vice president. The vice president is in hiding. He has a team of Secret Service agents who are begging him to please let them get the heck out of Dodge through a back door so they can save his life. It's a strange time to be sending an email saying you should have allowed for a public uh, airing of this legal matter.
1: Mike, I want to show you something um, Adam Kinzinger said about basically the fact that he and Liz Cheney stand alone at, at calling out folks like Eastman.
6: It's not really handing a win as much to Donald Trump as it is to the cancerous kind of lie and conspiracy, not just wing anymore, but mainstream argument of the Republican Party. This is not on you know the 10 of us that voted to impeach. It's not on Liz Cheney and I to save the Republican Party. It's on the 190 Republicans who haven't said a dang word about it and they put their head in the sand and hope somebody else comes along and does something.
1: I mean, Adam Kinzinger could have been Jim Comey after he was fired, could have been Don McGahn after uh, we learned he was listened to, could have been any one of the Republicans who sort of stared at that blockade of zombie Republicans who in the old days had no qualms calling out my old boss, George Bush or John McCain or any other party standard bearer, but continue to this day not to do so for Donald Trump.
5: Yeah, this is the stranglehold that we often talk about, about how Trump has the party in a way in his pocket today, more so than at any other point, perhaps even more so than when he was president of the United States and the way that they have fallen into line what he's wanted, even though he is does not have his rallies on mainstream television and that he is called out for his lies, that has not changed anything about how the base the Republican base views him and Kinsinger, and how his political career ended in the past few days is just the most recent stark example of that. You know, the Jeff Flakes of the world are long gone. They're now ambassadors for, for, Joe, Biden. for Joe Biden. And yeah. Trump continues continues to move on in in a way that is, um, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's it's incredibly profound and, and more great today than I ever thought it would be.
1: Especially after... Um costing them control of the House and the Senate and and the presidency. It's amazing. Mike Schmidt, Karolinik, thank you so much for being part of our coverage. Tomorrow, voters in Virginia will learn who their new governor will be, we hope. How will the last few weeks of culture war messaging and the looming presence of Donald J. Trump affect turnout? Our smart political friends join us after a quick break with their predictions.
0: Virginians pushing back on this, this culture, this culture that wants us to shelve hope, that tells our children they have to accept low standards. This culture that tells us that we, in fact, can't dream big dreams. No, this is a moment for Virginians to push back on this left liberal
7: progressive agenda and take our Commonwealth back. What bothers me to my core is what this man is doing He's dividing parents against parents, parents against school boards. He's using your children as political pawns in his campaign. It is a racist dog whistle. Folks, we are better than that. we We will not have that hatred here in the Commonwealth of Virginia.
1: Those are the final arguments on the final day of campaigning in Virginia. It is a high stakes race for governor with national implications. A flurry of new polling combined with reporting on the ground confirms what many of us have suspected for weeks. This contest between Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe and Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin at this hour is on a knife's edge. The neck and neck nature of the race illustrated in polling averages, Youngkin on top just barely and well within the margins of error in every poll. Early voting has been going on for weeks in a race that's put the specter of Donald Trump up against inflamed worries in Virginia, over exactly what's taught in school when it comes to race. New York Times summarizes it this way, quote, It was clear in interviews with voters over the weekend, many Virginians view this election as something symbolically greater than a face-off between two candidates for governor. The contest has exposed the country's persistent divisions over questions of race, class, privilege, and the appropriate role of government, and become an outlet for Virginians to register their dissatisfaction with the political culture. Let's bring into our coverage Democratic pollster and MSNBC political analyst Cornell Belcher and Jason Johnson. Cornell, what do you think is going on here?
7: <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I think there's there's a lot of variables uh, acting here, but I do think, it, it look— yeah, race has been a great um, mobilizer and energizer in American politics historically. I think Trump brought that home and made it more crystal clear to all of us. And you also see what, what Youngkin is doing right now in Virginia is actually part of the Trump continuum. I mean, his closing ad, Nicole, is about uh, the schools in Virginia being overwhelmed with violence and 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 sort of the, the and schools, you know, uh, on the teetering on 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 chaos, so it is this sort of scaring about the other and sort of attacking uh, beloved, you know, the uh, Tony Morrison. It is this same sort of you know Trumpism, but you know, sort of soft pedal of, of Trumpism, trying to sort of gin up a fear and anger and emotions, uh, particularly among a, a white base a white base of voters. It is very much what Trump did at the end of his campaign, when you remember he said if he lost, the suburbs were going to be on fire, you know trying to sort of gin up this, this fear and anxiousness among white suburban voters, particularly these white suburban voters who've been breaking more Democrat in the past, that they know they have to, in fact, win back. If this works, it is a blueprint for more of this sort of racial dog whistling, but sort of a softer peddling of it than than, than Trump did at, 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 at the national level. Though I think It will routinely be rejected by these by college educated white voters who actually don't see their schools sort of violence and chaos breaking out all around them.
1: So, Jason, I watched Youngkin's event Saturday morning in, um, I think, in Old Town, Alexandria. Um, I think part of the state that Mm -hmm. broke very heavily for Biden. He was um, it was a huge crowd. And the first thing he said, I think into a bullhorn or microphone, was, on my first day, I will ban critical race theory. Why did he say that? Does critical race theory need to be banned? Is it taught in Virginia?
4: No, of course not. But but here's the thing, Nicole, and this is something I, I say, and, and Cornell knows this as much, probably even better than I do. As a political scientist, I always pay attention to not just polling, but polling questions. Whenever I hear people say education has become the most important issue, it's not education. <laughs> education is a proxy for people's racial animosities, okay? Nobody's freaking out about that. And, and one key thing about this, Nicole, is think about what we've done over the last year. Over the last year, most people have had children in their house taking virtual classes. So so at some point when your kid was doing math class, sitting in the middle of the kitchen table, you heard the teacher say white people are evil. I don't think anyone actually heard that. So unless critical race theory magically appeared the moment kids went back to class, it is a lie. It is just a proxy, but it's something that he can use to up a certain kind of voters. Now, I think what's important to understand I don't think there's anyone out there that's affected by these issues that didn't want to already be affected. Critical race theory, just like the caravan a couple years ago, just like in 2004 with, you know, Susie has two mommies and parents were afraid that their children were going to be taught about the LGBTQ agenda. All of these things are not new. They're simply ways to gin up a certain group of people who are always ready to be angry. The issue has been whether or not Democrats in the state can demonstrate, hey, we have done enough to make you happy. Terry McAuliffe was wasn't super popular when he got elected in, uh, in in 2013. I mean, he only won by like 2% of the vote and there was a third party who won by six. So he's not the strongest of candidates. And I don't know. I I've said very clearly, I don't know how this race goes. I don't think it'll necessarily be something that can be transferred. If Youngkin ends up winning because you don't have that many Republicans out there who can pretend they're not excruciatingly racist long enough to actually win a presidential campaign. Or or a a governor's race.
1: Yeah, I want to press both of you on um, something that everyone has sort of accepted, including myself, that this race is totally nationalized. I, I want to probe that a little bit with both of you. If I can ask you to stay over a quick break, we'll be right back with Jason and Cornell.
0: Jen Psaki.
2: Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional?
0: Rachel Maddow.
2: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
0: Mondays, back to back.
2: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What what do you think it means?
0: Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC.
1: We're back with Cornell and Jason, two people who know a lot about politics. I want to just push you, Cornell, on this idea that it's totally a nationalized referendum on Trump insurrection and Biden's uh, ability to get his agenda through. It it seems to me, we talk to people in the state, that there's a little bit more going on here.
7: Well, there's a lot going on. And look, there's there's not one variable. But I will say this, Nicole uh, and my friend Jason, is that we use the term bellwether far too often in politics. That said, Virginia is kind of a bellwether. And why I say that is off-year elections and YouTube political hacks know this well. <laughs> off-year elections are really quite frankly about getting your turnout out, getting your getting mm-hmm. your getting your base fired up. And what I would say to yeah. you is is youngkin and republicans are crazy like foxes. Totally. Uh, critical race theory in school. Uh, you know, y- your white kids are being taught to, to, to sort of self-hate or, or, or hate their whiteness. Uh, Trump in the big lie, your country's being taken away from you. Elections are being stolen. Uh, you got to take back your country. Like Young can say, you got to we got to take back Virginia. All this is is aimed at ginning up energy among his Republican base. What are Democrats giving their base of voters yeah. to be energized and mobilized around? We're going to give you bridges and roads. maybe. So I do think this is a sort of a a, a bellwether. And look, if if and the polling, throw the polling out the window because you also remember Northam actually when when Northam got more votes than anyone in the in the history of a a governor's race in Virginia. uh, One, the polling average was about two percent. It was it was a tight race there too. This is all about what the electorate looks like on election day. And if you tell me that on election day that 22% of that electorate is African-American, that 55, 56% of that, that electorate is college college educated, if 44, 43% of that electorate is under 45, I'm going to say that Democrats in fact did turn out and they were mobilized and Terry McAuliffe is going to have a good evening. If those things don't happen, I think you're going to have Terry McAuliffe having a difficult evening, but I also think that means something for Democrats going into the midterm. If we lose Virginia— I'm sorry. It's time to hit the panic button because after Virginia, it's the deluge.
1: Yeah, and to maybe re-examine the priorities, um, I want to read you this, Jason Johnson, in Politico. Last-ditch fight for black votes could swing Virginia. The focus on black voters in the final stretch of the campaign illustrates the critical role they'll play on Tuesday. Not only did McAuliffe win a prior term as governor with the overwhelming support of black voters, especially black women, every national election since then has proved how critical they are to Democratic chances of victory in close races. While some involved in Virginia have taken heart in a late upswing in energy, others stress that black Voters are exhausted from the fight against Donald Trump and frustrated with the lack of progress in Washington. We cover the fight for federal voting rights legislation every single day. And do you know what black swing voters are called in those stories? Activists. Why are the activists courted ahead of a close election, but the activist priorities ignored during the regular course of business?
4: I would I would ask that question of, of of Jamie Harrison and the Democratic Party as a whole. Uh, because that's part of the problem here. Like, like, black people ain't here to save this country, right? <laughs> we, we, we have never been, regardless of what kind of op-eds or questions that people write, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to actually live and breathe and have our lives like everybody else. And so I, I tend to find these kinds of articles and that sort of theme that always pops up at the last minute, I find it almost low-key insulting, um, because the entire onus of keeping this country functional is put on a group of people who haven't received 40% of the benefits that this place supposedly has as advertised. But that aside I'll say this, Nicole, you can't galvanize any of your constituents. 48 hours before an election, you got to have those people excited all along. Look, former President Obama's been there. Stacey Abrams has been there. I know lots of people have been there campaigning. But what this is going to boil down to is not just, as Cornell mentioned, as you've mentioned, Nicole, it's not just national issues. It's the feeling within the state that they are moving forward in a proper way. way. I am actually less concerned about what happens with Youngkin and and McAuliffe, because I don't think McAuliffe is the strongest of candidates, than I am about the fact that the Virginia House, the Democrats have like a six-seat lead. If they lose that, like if they lose the House as well, that is a very dangerous sign for Democrats, because that means by 2024, right, because they don't have their next election until 2025, you can see some shenanigans end up happening when it comes to electoral votes and the presidential election. So that is actually what I am paying attention to. Can they hold the top of the ticket? And can they also hold parts of the House so that you don't have issues when we come to national elections?
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I asked Jamie Harrison about this, and, and he didn't seem that concerned. But what if it's close? McAuliffe wins, and um, Youngkin takes a page out of Trump's playbook and doesn't concede? Cornell.
4: Oh, I that is <laughs> well. Oh, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> go ahead, Jason. You take it. But yeah, I, that's that's perfectly possible. It's
1: perfectly it's possible. possible. Like There's I, I no wouldn't put it past Youngkin happen, at this point. But it's just a new a new thing to watch and and worry about. What do you think, Cornell?
7: Well, look, I, I do think Virginia is a is is a changing is a changing state. I mean, I'm a Virginian. I grew up in down in Taiwan and, and Norfolk, and it was solidly solidly Republican state. But demographic sh- shifts are happening, and that anxiety there that we see nationally is also happening in part in part in parts of Virginia. Look, you know, Barack Obama lost. He only got thirty seven percent of the white vote there. Terry McAuliffe lost white voters there by by thirty by I think thirty points last last time around. So there is this this sort of racial Angst, sort of underlying, and sort of you know, they're 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 in the, they're in the state, but big parts of it, sort of northern Virginia, you know, the the, the ring counties are, are, are around around Richmond, as well as down there there in Tywater sort of the, the, these college educated, more suburban voters who have been breaking, uh, more Democrat, have been sort of you know, holding Virginia holding Virginia up. But I will right. also sort of change the narrative here. R- Republicans will not have a better chance in the next decade of winning Virginia historically. This they're supposed to they're supposed to do well historically. Right. Now they're supposed to do really well historically. Now all the measurements, all the histories says Republicans do well now. If 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 Youngkin fails to 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 win Virginia, given the sort of different kind of campaign he's tried to run and try to walk that thin line, if he's if he if he run if he loses Virginia right now, I think it's a devastating blow to Republicans because they're not going to have a better chance in the next decade of winning this state than they do right now.
1: We'll be watching Cornell Velter, Jason and, Johnson. And
4: I, oh, good. Oh, yeah. I just want to add real quick. Also, because this election is being done with the old census information. By the time the new census information comes up, Virginia is completely blue. So Cornell is completely right. This is the only chance that Republicans are going to have because Northern Virginia is going to be 70 percent of the state by the time they do the new numbers.
1: You guys have more information than we have time for. Thank you so much for being part of our coverage. We'll have special coverage of election night tomorrow starting at 5 p.m. Eastern. That's when we're on the air, that's when we'll get our first look at exit polling from Virginia. I will be here with my friends and colleagues, Rachel Maddow, Joy Reid, and Steve Kornacki. Steve Kornacki will be crunching the numbers at the big board all night long. We hope you'll spend the evening with all of us tomorrow. The next Hour of Deadline White House starts after a very short break. Don't go anywhere, we're just getting started.
10: Across the arguments this morning, Texas's position is that no one can sue, not the women whose rights are most directly affected, not the providers who have been chilled in being able to provide those women with care, and not the United States in this suit. If that is true, if a state can just take this simple mechanism of taking its enforcement authority and giving it to the general public, backed up with a bounty of $10,000 or $1 million, if they can do that, then no constitutional right is safe no constitutional decision from this court is safe. Our constitutional guarantees cannot be that fragile, and the supremacy of federal law cannot be that easily subject to manipulation.
1: Hi again, everyone, it's five o'clock in New York, a very significant day for the United States Supreme Court and the future of women's reproductive freedoms in the United States of America today. You just heard U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Preloger arguing before the Supreme Court against the new law in Texas, SB 8, that effectively bans all abortions in the state. Her challenge was one of two that the court heard on Texas's abortion ban this morning, arguing that the law has a chilling effect on abortion providers And that its provision, which you heard there, which puts enforcement into the hands of private citizens, allows it to escape judicial review. About today's hearings, the New York Times reports this, quote, After almost three hours of lively arguments, a majority of the justices seemed inclined to allow abortion providers, but perhaps not the Biden administration, to pursue a challenge to a Texas law that has sharply curtailed abortions in the state. That would represent an important shift from a five to four ruling in September that allowed the law to go into effect. Mark Heron, the senior counsel for the Center for Reproductive Rights, who represented the abortion providers before the Supreme Court today, left with an optimistic view. Watch.
5: We're pleased, obviously. uh, Several of the justices had concerns about the broad implications if a state is allowed to um, nullify a federal right through a scheme like Texas SB8. And so we we hope to have relief uh, from this court finally, after this law has been in effect for two months now, depriving patients across the state from being able to exercise a fundamental right that's been recognized by this court.
1: We do not know when the court will rule on these cases, but as here in reference there, the questioning by justices especially two of them, provide some insight into their thinking. Politico reports this, quote, "...two appointees of President Donald Trump, Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, raised the hopes of abortion rights advocates with their questions in Monday's arguments. Both aired concerns that Texas's abortion ban was designed to evade federal law and constitutional review." Our good friend Joyce Vance came to this conclusion as well after today's hearings. Quote, bottom line on the SB8 argument is whether we continue to be a rule of law country or whether states can create constructs that deny their citizens constitutional rights but prevent federal court review. Prediction. SCOTUS won't permit it even if they reverse Roe in Dobbs. Dobbs, of course, is the other case on abortion rights that the Supreme Court is set to hear soon. Exactly one month from today, we'll hear arguments on a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks, taking direct aim at the 50-year-old landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. An historic day in the fight to protect women's rights to choose And abortion is where we start this hour with some of our favorite reporters and friends. NBC News correspondent Julia Ainsley is here. Also joining us, Kimberly Atkins-Store, senior opinion writer for the Boston Globe, an MSNBC contributor and co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast. And Nancy Northup is here, president and CEO of the Center of Reproductive Rights. The center is representing the Hope Medical Group for Women, the lead plaintiff in the Supreme Court case. I want to start with you, Nancy, and just your reaction to what you heard today.
9: Well, it was very heartening today that front and center in the Supreme Court argument was how extreme Texas's abortion law is, clearly unconstitutional, banning abortion before most women know that they're pregnant. But also that the justices really grasped the fact that Texas created this law to evade the ability of uh, providers representing you know, women who seek services as well as others from going into court to block it. It really was clear that this was a, you know, a, a scheme by the state of Texas to get around the protections we have that when constitutional rights are violated by states, that you can go into federal court and have those rights vindicated. So it was really front and center in the argument today. and We were heartened to hear the questions from the justices that really put a fine
1: point on this. Nancy, were you heartened more by the justices' aversion to vigilantism, which you could sort of pull the thread and say, well, they don't want uh, the right to bear arms to be banned as long as citizens police that? Or were you heartened by anything you heard on the question of preserving women's reproductive liberties?
9: Well, of course, the the issue before the court today, which will be before the court on December 1st, in our case uh, against the state of Mississippi, is whether Roe versus Wade will be overturned. That wasn't the question before the court today. The question today from the court is, can a state violate constitutional rights so blatantly and then try to evade the ability in federal and frankly also in state court from getting any relief? And so that is the fight we're in for today. We need to get these clinics back in services in Texas. They're only being able to provide services under uh, six weeks of pregnancy, and that is before many people know they're pregnant. So today's fight is about getting the clinics back open in Texas and getting rid of this very pernicious law that, as you pointed out, can also affect every single constitutional right. It can be used by any state to disagree with a constitutional right that they don't find
1: um, valid. And Kim, it was written as such. I I believe the architect's of the legal strategy's name is Mr. Mitchell. And, and it was written to do just this, to put enforcement in the hands of neighbors, to turn Uber drivers and Lyft drivers. I've interviewed the, the uh, Lyft, saying that they would protect and defend any of their drivers. Um, it, it, to me, was a sign of two things. One, that they'll stop at nothing. And, and two, the, the extreme nature of the law was so politically unpalatable, even to Republicans, even to pro-life folks on the spectrum. That I I wonder what you sort of make of of the stakes and what you heard today with all that.
11: Yeah, I think everything that you say is exactly right. It's really about the way uh, one major issue today was about the way this law was written. And yes, I mean, you make a good point. If this was a super popular, uncontroversial law, then lawmakers wouldn't have to sort of ram it through and wrap it into this judicial review free uh, packaging in order to pass it, right? Sort of that's an, and that gives you a clue uh, as to uh, how difficult a piece of legislation it would be. And it would incentivize people in other states. And that really seemed to be the argument that carried the day for what seemed like a majority of justices. Remember, they're at the head. Of the judiciary. They're not going to take very kindly to state lawmakers trying to get crafty and take their say out of the picture in considering the constitutionality of something whether or not, uh, regardless of how they feel about the ultimate constitutionality. But I can't help but re- remember that this law was allowed by the Supreme Court to go into effect in the first place while this challenge made its way back to them. That tells me something about how they feel on the substance of whether uh, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land in the face of this law that clearly violates it, but at least for today, it seems that the court is really wary of allowing states to take that vigilante route.
1: I want to read some of the, um, some more of the reporting to you, Julia, but I just want to follow up with you real quick, Kim. Um, I think we've learned from watching the justices over the last six to nine months that they hear everything. They watch a lot more news coverage than I would have ever predicted a Supreme Court justice would have time to do. This is the approval rating of the United States Supreme Court right now. 40% um, approve. It's down 10 points in September from July. So since they, using the shadow docket, let this near total ban on abortions in Texas, 85% of all abortions happen after six weeks of pregnancy because... Most women have no idea they're pregnant at six weeks of pregnancy. Supreme Court lost 10 points. I wonder if you think that plays into anything from the tone to the tenor to anything.
11: I'm not sure that polling would move them, but I certainly think they heard the criticism, especially over their increased use of the shadow docket, not just in this case, but in a host of cases that affected immigrants' rights and all kinds of other things, evictions, um, that they heard that Ranker first. You, you saw several justices address it in speeches saying, whoa, whoa, don't call us political. We're not. Um, and, and now you're seeing this Fast track. I mean, the fact that an, a case was taken up and got to argument in a matter of weeks is really uh, very unusual, and that's certainly in response to the shadow docket criticism. So I think the court is listening. I'm not sure if that would affect the substantive rulings that they make, but at least it's changing how they're hearing the cases.
1: Julia, let's go back to what we heard today, the tea leaves we're all reading. Uh, This is from Politico. Justice Kavanaugh seemed troubled by the possibility that allowing the Texas law to remain in effect could lead other states to pass laws that would intrude on various rights protected by the Constitution. One of the key arguments the abortion clinics challenging the law put forward when asking the court to strike it down. Kavanaugh theorized that a left-leaning state could offer a $1 million bounty against those who saw an assault rifle like an AR-15, then claim it wasn't using state power because only private parties could bring the suits. There's a loophole that's been exploited here or used here, Kavanaugh said. It could be free speech rights. It could be free exercise of religion rights. It could be Second Amendment rights. Um, That is a question we've been posing here for, uh, I think, since August when this was first allowed to stand. And I wonder, was it a surprise that Kavanaugh sort of keyed in on that?
10: I mean, I think it is. I mean, typically a conservative justice would want to be more conservative with how a president might be set going forward. And so you would expect them to be concerned. But of course, Kavanaugh is one of three people appointed by President Trump shortly after he campaigned on appointing justices who would overturn Roe versus Wade. So I think that really was one of the main things that struck out to anyone hearing those arguments today. I also have to point out that being able to hear those arguments in itself was amazing new and we're able to air them here to give a degree of transparency into these proceedings like we have never seen before. But on the other side of that, I was also wanted to mention Neil Gorsuch also a Trump appointee pointing out that there could be another president set if they do not allow this law to go forward because of the fact that they are not waiting for someone to actually sue a, a private citizen to sue someone in Texas who might be involved in an abortion and instead they want an injunction before that lawsuit happens because of course the abortion providers are saying that it's having a chilling effect he says well then you know in that case could that be a president that is set forth could it be and he didn't use this this example directly, but could it be that you could sue someone who might be going after you for something before they actually do, in other words, to always go to the court before you are penalized for breaking the law. And so that could be another precedent. So- they're weighing all of this, but it's because it's such an unusual law, Nicole. It was written in a way that is challenge-proof. And that architect that you talked about, Jonathan Mitchell, he was a clerk of the late conservative Justice Scalia, who obviously, that's that's the cloth that they have broken this law off from. And um, it's very interesting to see how all of this will play out in the end, and especially even if these justices do decide that this law goes too far you have december another just a month from today a time where they will then be hearing and, and deciding more on the merits of reverse wade in that mississippi case
1: yeah i want to broaden this conversation out to that and and i yeah. I think it's remarkable that so many of the justices spoke out in the last eight to 12 weeks about not being political and not being a political body. It was sort of in the category of, of he and she doth protesteth too much. I think they are more aware than maybe any of us assume of how wildly out of the mainstream, a total ban on abortion is, even on the right, in American politics. And I want to read this for you, Nancy. This is the New York Times opinion piece. Roe is as good as gone. It's time for a new strategy. We need to make noise. We need to organize protests and boycotts well before state laws, like the one in Texas, come to a vote let alone make it to the Supreme Court. Eight years ago, a Texas state senator, Wendy Davis, conducted an 11-hour filibuster that briefly stopped an anti-abortion law and started a run on pink sneakers. Creative newsworthy resistance builds public awareness and support, rallying voter support from the Capitol steps to social media influencers. Those voting for abortion restrictions should pay a political price for doing so. It seems so obvious to me, understanding from working for Republicans how politically deadly extreme views on abortion really are, but none of this is actually happening. I mean, I'm not sure about the Virginia race, but I haven't seen abortion rise to the candidate level in Virginia or New Jersey. Why is that? If that's a question for me, I just want to say that
9: the Center for Reproductive Rights doesn't engage in electoral politics, so you might want to throw it to one of your other panelists today. But just, but just uh, public awareness. Today. I
1: mean, but just should, should we be talking about it more? Should it be well, part of the public conversation? Should it be part of news coverage in local states, regardless of whether they have Democratic or Republican officials? Should it be part of the public discourse?
9: Absolutely. Yes. And I actually believe it really is changing. And we are in a different policy environment and also, therefore, a different kind of political social environment than we were, you know, even, you know, five years ago, because, you know, you now have a situation where the House has passed the Women's Health Protection Act. That's unprecedented in response to what the Supreme Court did. You had in the Mississippi abortion case, we had an amicus brief filed by women athletes, including uh, Olympians, including the National Women's Soccer League Players Association, the Women's NBA Players Association. I mean, you see people coming forward in a way that is really different. So I think it is very much part of the public debate because, as you point out, the majority of the public, 70 percent of people want abortion to be legal. And so the kind of schemes that Texas are doing are very unpopular with people. One in four women will make the decision in her lifetime to end a pregnancy. This is an experience that a lot of people have had, that their friends and loved ones have had. So it is very much there's been so much stigma around it. It's been hard to break it in the past. But it is now being broken with people standing up and saying, yeah, we stand with the right to access abortion services. We stand with that right.
1: And, you know, Kim, some of this is evidenced in the silence of Republicans around the shadow docket decision by the United States Supreme Court. You did not see even the sort of Trumpiest of Republicans out there banging their fists on the table. This is politics of this um, are perilous for Republicans.
11: They are, because these are not the most uh, popular, uh, if, you, if you poll people, these aren't the t- type of laws that they're out uh, crying out to get passed. They're laws that uh, adhere to the more uh, you know hardened center of the party, uh, the, the center that becomes more hardened on that type of politics, the smaller that the party gets. So it, it's heading out of that direction, so you don't hear that drumbeat, but I think it, it was interesting to hear... The court purposely make the point today that the type of maneuver Texas is usually using can be used by both sides, and that it would be in their interest uh, to, to back uh, those who try to ensure that the courts have a way to review these laws, regardless of what the outcome is. Just be, being able to review them is, is that crucially
1: important. Julia, I'll give you the last word. Tell us what happens next.
10: Well, what happens next is that this could actually be a very long time till we actually get a decision in this case. And meanwhile, there are women in Texas who have to travel across state lines if they have the means to receive those services. And then we'll be watching to see what happens in December with that Mississippi case to see uh, whether or not the justices really are in a place where they could overturn, as you said, this 50-year president of Roe versus Wade. So a lot of eyes on the Supreme Court. Um, I was outside today. I saw probably fewer protesters than we expected, especially on the pro-life side. And it could be because this law in particular is so strange and different from other abortion laws. But boy, in December, Nicole, that will get to the heart of it and Roe versus Wade and whether or not abortion rights are here to stay or not in this country
1: we'll stay on it nbc's julia ainsley kimberly atkins store and nancy northup thank you all so much for starting us off our coverage today when we come back the real world impact facing women in texas under that near total ban on abortion there we'll talk to a doctor in houston about how drastically things have changed since the Bambi Cape law plus as thousands of firefighters take sick leave as vaccine mandates go into effect in new york city We will unravel the rampant disinformation that continues to spread among key groups, including FDNY. And in the wake of strict new laws curtailing both abortion and voting, there's a warning to pro athletes from the NAACP stay away from Texas. We'll explain. Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Don't go anywhere.
0: Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day, each morning in your inbox with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com.
1: Well, the oral arguments before the Supreme Court today covered the rather technical legal issues surrounding the challenges to the near total abortion ban in Texas. A filing by Planned Parenthood is detailing the real world horror facing both patients and providers under that Texas law. One patient, FP we'll call her, is a 16 year old student denied an abortion because of FB-8. FP's mother does not have a stable home. If they were not able to obtain financial assistance to travel, FP's mother feared FP, quote, would be forced to do something she's not ready for, become a parent, which would take a toll on her. Another, CN and her husband live in East Texas with their five children, the youngest of whom is an infant. She knew she wanted an abortion the second she saw the positive test. She said, I used to love living in Texas. Now I hate it. It feels like we're prisoners hr a nurse in oklahoma said many patients are coming to oklahoma with a sense of desperation she recalls a patient who suggested she had been so desperate for the abortion that she would have undergone an abortion performed by someone who was not a real health care professional if she had not secured care at the oklahoma clinic Joining us now is Baki Kumar, an abortion provider who works at a Planned Parenthood Center for Choice in Houston, Texas, and our friend, MSNBC medical contributor, Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama White House policy director, and now a fellow at the Brookings Institute. I've tried to keep the focus on Texas, and Dr. Kumar, I just want to ask you to elaborate on, on your sense of what is happening there now.
12: Yes, certainly some of the stories you shared are things that we hear every day from folks that are accessing abortion or needing to access that care. So these stories are not new for us. These are folks that we take care of every single day and really the reason why we go to work to take care of patients. Unfortunately, under Senate Bill 8, our ability to help patients has been dramatically reduced and oftentimes, while I'm trained and have the expertise to provide that care for my patients, I now have to say, sorry, you're going to have to go to another state. We can help you with the logistics. But then there are still patients that say, I just can't make that happen. That's not a possibility for me, whether it's childcare or time off of work or the logistics to figure out how to get out of state, wait several weeks until they can get to that appointment and make it over there. Sometimes needing to make two trips is just insurmountable for so many people.
1: And there's a reason that in American politics, the debate has always been, the pendulum has swung, even on the pro-life side, to almost always talk about restrictions with exceptions for rape and incest. There's a reason why. I want to read you what happens when those aren't in place. Nurse practitioner T.W. saw a young teen who came from Texas to Oklahoma after being raped and impregnated by her father. Unfortunately, the family member taking care of her lacked the guardianship forms to be able to consent to the abortion and they had to turn her away. Um, talk about these victims of the ban, Dr. Kumar.
12: Sure, yeah, so of course every person has their own story. Some of these stories that we hear are you know certainly more tragic and sit with us for longer and affect us in different ways. And some of the stories that we hear around rape and incest is certainly some of those that, Um, hit us in a different way. Um, When the person that's being abused is also a minor, a child, um, it is very, very difficult to hear those stories. Before Senate Bill 8, of course, we could hear those stories. And while that person's sitting there with the trauma and and things that they've gone through, we can at least say, well, we can help you not be pregnant. We can at least help you with one thing so that you can move on with the other things you need to in your life. But under Senate Bill 8, we have to say, we're not able to help you. Um, And it's very, very difficult. It feels unethical for me as a physician to talk with my patient, to hear that they know that they need an abortion, that they can't be pregnant, that they've experienced all this trauma around rape or incest. And then we have to say, well, now we have to figure out how to get you to a different state to get this procedure that is very safe, very simple for us to perform. And we usually do that care here, but understand at Bill 8, we're going to have to now inflict more trauma on you. And it's difficult for that person. It's difficult for their family. Um, it's very, very unfortunate. And for me as a physician, it just feels unethical.
1: Dr. Patel, um, Governor Abbott made a comment about eliminating all rape and all rapists, getting them off the streets. I think a lot of women in the um, sort of domestic violence space pointed out that a lot of rape doesn't happen on the streets, it happens in the home. I want to read you some reporting in the Huffington Post. Seven days after Pushpa gave birth to her son, her husband became angry, angrier than usual. He snatched the newborn out of her arms and began hitting her, one arm holding the baby and one fist aimed at her. The abuse only got worse. During a big snowstorm earlier this year, her husband became physically abusive. He dragged her by the hair and threw her out of the house. She sat outside barefoot in the snow for over 30 minutes until her husband let her back in because the baby was crying. And he didn't know what to do. Ten days later, Pushpa's husband raped her. She found out she was pregnant again, and she knew with every bone in her body, she could not continue with the pregnancy. Quote, I was definitely scared that he would try to stop the abortion, Pushpa said. But if I were to continue my pregnancy, it would have been like giving my life to him all over again. It would be like giving my soul away to him. The Texas abortion ban really speaks directly to intimate partner violence in the ways that it replicates control over women's bodies and strips away their autonomy. That's Amber Sutton, a licensed clinical social worker. This is a state-sanctioned reproductive violence, she added. Do you see it that way, Dr. Patel? Yeah,
8: not only do I see it that way, but think of just the generational harm. Think of how many people kind of seeing this Uh, every kind of person that's experienced intimate partner violence that I've encountered, and sadly, Nicole, it's too many people who have kind of had these similar experiences. Every single person I've encountered, it creates a ripple effect, not just in their household, but amongst kind of everyone around them. And the tone that the governor set, taking, you know, quote-unquote, you know, rapists off the street, sure, we're doing it off the street and sanctioning it in our own homes without women or actually children. Think of the children in those households having no recourse whatsoever, victims to just the mercy or the unjust mercy of a state. And I think on top of that, I would just say this is ironically also, Nicole, the state, my home state, the the state that did not expand Medicaid. This is the state that President Biden's trying to fight so that we can give millions of children and women access so that they can actually give birth to children safely. So for a governor to say that he wants to take crime off the street, for a Texas attorney general who said that they want to advocate for life. Their actions in the past certainly do not support that. And this is just even one more example kind of how they've let down so many Texan families and women.
1: Dr. Bhavik Kumar, thank you for being part of this part of our coverage and our conversation and for spending some time with us. Dr. Kavita Patel is sticking around when we come back as New York City's vaccine mandate takes effect. New reporting on how far and how deep disinformation about vaccines has seeped into groups and communities all across the city. That reporting's next. In New York City, officials say thousands of city employees have been put on unpaid leave for not getting at least one vaccine dose as required by a new mandate. The city's fire department is preparing, if they need to, to deploy private teams to make up for more than 2,000 firefighters that have taken medical leave in the last week, more than half of whom, a senior official says, are not vaccinated. It comes as the New York Times reveals staggering data from the city on vaccine disinformation and the conspiracy behind it. Margay writes this, quote, the reports were only necessary because not everyone has been rooting for the coronavirus to lose. Among the spooky Lies. Vaccinated people have developed boils. Vaccines magnetize the body deep state operatives develop the vaccines together with the military, all of it nonsense. The reports, which have not been made public, draw a distinction between misinformation, the unintentional spreading of inaccurate information, and disinformation, which is not only inaccurate, but likely malicious. Joining our conversation is a reporter who wrote that piece, Mara Gay, New York Times editorial board member, as well as an MSNBC contributor, Dr. Kavita Patel, still with us. Mara, I was looking at some of these numbers, and we should point out to our viewers, this is a fluid situation. Situation. Um, NYPD seems to be posting some better numbers than FDMY, but but talk about what they were up against, what they were being fed in terms of misinformation and disinformation.
13: Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. We all knew that there was mis and disinformation out there, but this gave me a chance to actually look at how it was spreading and what these rumors and lies were. And so You know, what you really come to understand when you pour through these documents, these intelligence reports that the city has been collecting, is that they're highly specific to New York's very often insular communities. So you have uh, FDNY's EMS union head who's got, you know, uh, one perspective that he's spreading, which isn't quite right about the vaccines. In other neighborhoods, you have Polish communities that are being subjected to misinformation you have Russian disinformation campaigns, right wing disinformation campaigns, doctors on the Upper East Side who are spreading false claims at times through Facebook live events. The city has documented it all. And so I think ultimately the takeaway here is that uh, these social networking platforms that are being used to kind of spread this disinformation or misinformation, they are highly connective with the communities that we talk to on a day to day basis. So. Therefore, it, it's kind of an insular experience. So one neighborhood might might have one set of myths about the vaccine, but a, another neighborhood next door maybe speaks a different language and has an entirely different set of misinformation that city officials and public health officials are trying to co- combat. And so I think the city's municipal workforce, I have to say, overall is uh, has actually been very highly compliant. Uh, we're at over 90 percent. It might even be higher than that now, I think. And and so overall, it's been a huge success. But now we're getting to the holdouts. And there are various reasons, obviously, why people aren't getting vaccinated. Not all of it is misinformation. Um, but so ultimately, those those workers are going to have to comply, as the mayor has said, or they will lose their jobs. Um, but we are talking about a number in the in the low thousands at this point, which is a yeah, good thing. Yeah. So the city wanna, has overall made really good progress here.
1: I, I, I want to do that. I want to put up sort of the forest through the trees. Ninety one percent, as Mara said, of municipal employees are vaccinated. FDNY has eighty one percent of its workforce with at least one dose and NYPD has eighty-four percent. Um but we are talking about the trees, the trees that have been fueled by disinformation, and I wanna read you, um Dr. Patel from Mars Peace. There are limits to what city governments can do, especially since, as the reports make clear, the role of right-wing media and social media companies in spreading misinformation is extensive. In July, city health department officials sent a letter to Facebook and Twitter, urging the companies to, quote, take immediate action to remove such content from their platforms. Health department officials said Facebook didn't respond. They said they're in the process of scheduling a phone conversation with Twitter executives to address their concerns nobody I've spoken to in city government is holding his or her breath. Why not? Why shouldn't we hold our breath and talk about it every day until Facebook and Twitter agree to take down disinformation specifically targeted to specific communities? It's, it's all here. It would be easy for Twitter or Facebook to find it. Um, leaflets aimed at Orthodox Jewish communities in Brooklyn. It seems like that should be something you could search with your algorithms. The uh, city's Polish community treated to false claims that the MR vaccines were designed to annihilate Christianity in the Polish nation. seems like someone at Facebook should be able to find an algorithm to root that out. Why why not hold our breath and wait for Facebook and Twitter to answer questions about why they can't get rid of that misinformation?
8: Yeah, I agree. I think we should hold our breath. And I I hate to state it so bluntly, but we've got people who are holding their breath in the form that it's resulting in deaths. We still are having, I mean, look around us. We still have deaths, cases. They're coming down, thankfully. But We are still kind of in the thick of this, especially in parts of the country where we have more unvaccinated people than not. And we're watching what's happening around the world and we can't be complacent. So we should hold our breath. And I think on top of that, to me, this is just one. I think Mars piece was excellent in also highlighting the parallels between the disinformation campaign with COVID. So very obvious to us, but this has been the same disinformation campaign playing roles in many other kind of health efforts and the elections and so many other things that we've been talking about. And candidly, myself included, I feel like many of us are just at a loss because it's a little bit of a -a whack-a-mole. Let's say we do get at some of the disinformation coming from doctors on the Upper East Side. I feel like I can whack that down and then we'll see some from Florida, a group of doctors, for example, from Florida that come up and get kind of reposted, liked and retweeted. So to your point, we're at the we're at the mercy of algorithms and at the mercy now of health commissioners spending their time writing executives of social media companies. Come on, give me a break. This should be a no brainer. I want the intelligence of the health commissioner, who is a very smart man, to be focused on making New Yorkers healthy. And that's what they're trying to do. But this feels like where's the accountability from these companies that have actually had more of a hand in taking away the health of New Yorkers than probably many other things that I can directly point to, sodas, cigarettes, and so many other things, which is an irony in itself.
1: (laughs) It's a great, great piece of reporting. It tells a story much broader than just New York. Margie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Dr. Kavita Patel, thank thank you you for spending some time with us. When we come back, my top civil rights leader is urging professional athletes not to sign with teams from Texas. We'll bring you that story after a quick break.
0: Jen Psaki.
2: Have you ever seen the house this dysfunctional?
0: Rachel Maddow.
2: If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it?
0: Mondays, back to back.
2: Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means?
0: Inside with Jen Saki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC.
1: With the U.S. Supreme Court today hearing arguments about Texas's near-total ban on abortion, it's more clear than ever that Texas has become the epicenter for far-right-wing policymaking, the near-total ban on abortion, bans on mask mandates, and voting restrictions based on false claims of voter fraud. Just last week, Governor Greg Abbott signed into law the state's new redistricting bill, which heavily favors the Republicans and reduces the voting strength of non-white voters who happen to fuel Texas's population growth over the past few years. In response, the NAACP has released an open letter condemning the governor's action by targeting some very high-profile residents of the state, professional athletes. In the letter addressed to athletes in the NBA, NFL, WNBA, MLB, NHL, w, the NAACP president, Derek Johnson, appeals to free agents of all those leagues with one simple message. If you are a free agent and are considering employment in Texas, look elsewhere. Joining us now, the author of that letter, the president and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson. This is, I mean, sports and activism have always been connected and, and athletes have been powerful activists. This feels like a a big step and an important one, and I wonder what the reception was to your letter.
6: Well, it is important because we're talking to athletes who will be moving their families to Texas. And this is something they should consider. You know, whether or not their son, their daughter will have the ability to learn, uh, a true history, whether or not they'll be able to participate as full citizens, whether or not their wives will, will be respected, uh, as a full person. Well, those are all important things. So it's not a big step. It's a consideration that anyone, when they consider employment, should have information about it. We thought it was important to, to, to share an open letter. And we have heard back from many of the players' associations. And they have taken heed to what we're saying.
1: I want to read more from the letter. Texas lawmakers have destroyed the state's moral compass by passing these laws. In return, we're asking that you seek employment with sports teams located in states that will protect, honor, and serve your families with integrity. The Texas government will not protect your family. Demand that Texas owners invest in your rights and protect your investments. Texas is not safe for you, your spouse, or your children. Until the legislation is overturned, Texas isn't safe for anyone. If it, an athlete were to sort of call you for counsel and say, you know, I, I, I want to go, um, you know, press an issue, what, what is the deliverable we want? What would be the one thing you'd have them push back on?
6: Well, it's important. When athletes are free agents, especially, and they have options, they need to understand their options. You know, if, if there's a professional basketball player and they could want to consider uh, really displaying their talents for a city, but also being a full citizen, uh, what Texas has done is uh, suffocate their ability to be full citizens through their redistricting process, to su- suffocate African-American and Latino voices, through their inability to allow for true history to be taught. I mean, it is. It's really important that, in this democracy, that we have federal protection for our, our right to participate and vote. That's been the work of the NAACP for 112 years, and it's been the platforms used by athletes to ensure that social justice, equity, and opportunity is afforded to all citizens.
1: Major League Baseball moved the All-Star Game out of Georgia after that state passed its voter suppression law and efforts to change who counts the votes. Uh, but, but As you're talking about, Texas went ahead and passed a law even more restrictive based on in some ways even more unfounded claims of voter fraud. There was no voter fraud. There wasn't any in Georgia. There wasn't any in Texas. Are you surprised that more leagues haven't been more involved in protesting and boycotting states rolling in voter suppression laws when there wasn't any fraud?
6: Well, Nicole, I've been surprised that we have not been able to adopt federal voting protections. I think that's yeah. most important. Texas and Georgia and none of these states should be able to do this if, in fact, the U.S. Senate senators realize that procedural rules should not impede substantive uh, rights of one's ability to participate and vote. We cannot send our troops abroad to fight for democracy and yet deny true democracy here at home at targeted citizens. For African Americans, we've seen this before, and we must do all we can to prevent it from repeating itself in the future. Equal protection under the law, full access to the ballot should be afforded to all citizens and not uh, allows a, a small segment of the population dictate who the voters should be to elect them, as opposed to voters determining who should represent them.
1: Do you get athletes or their agents calling to find out how to get more involved in any of this? Or was sort of the 2020 election uh, sort of there was a lot of activism. I think basketball arenas turned into voting centers. I mean, WNBA was very active. The NBA was very active. What is the dialogue like? How much input and interaction do you have with teams, leagues and athletes about voting rights legislation?
6: It's been a, a profound. Uh, since we released the letter, we've had several calls from Players Association, individual athletes, and agents, you know, inquiring about the letter, getting clarifications, but all of which have supported the approach we're taking. And that's really important. If you consider athletes across the decades, many athletes really use their platforms to advance social justice and equity. And we've seen that happen in 2020, and I believe we're going to be begin to see many athletes speak out as we look at certain states and how states are allowing or impeding one's ability to fully participate as a citizen.
1: Derek, we'd like to stay on this story. If you have anyone that is willing to speak out, that got your letter and says, yeah, I, 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 this is important. This is something I can do. Um, if I have the opportunity to play in Texas, I'm not going to take it. Um, come back with, with that athlete or their representative and, and we'll continue the conversation. Fascinating, fascinating development. Derek Johnson, thank you for spending some time with us on it. Quick break for us. We'll be right back. There wasn't much to laugh about in the dying days of the Trump presidency, but worth perhaps a chuckle was Rudy Giuliani's debacle, that now infamous press conference, not at the lavish Four Seasons Hotel, but instead entirely mistakenly at Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Philadelphia, just as the race was being called For President Joe Biden. So for Halloween yesterday, that business tweeted this, quote, this year our costume was an obvious one and the photo they're building with the sign of the Four Seasons Swanky Hotel on it. Believe it or not, that press conference by Rudy was one year ago this weekend. To mark the occasion, MSNBC is going to air Four Seasons Total Documentary, a much closer look at that day, this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, something for all of us to look forward to. We will be right back. Thank you so much for letting us into your homes during these extraordinary times. We're grateful.